I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Because some prostitute told him that the car could be found in a garage owned by a former D.C. officer named Green. There had to be a strong motivation. You pay me up or else. It could be one of two things. Total incompetence or there can be an element of corruption. There were things that were just best left buried. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 13. This podcast contains graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. I discovered that there was a follow-up report that retired Montgomery County Police Captain Theodore Volton had written in 1954. A strictly confidential informant had come forward with information on the Carbarn case, and Volton came out of retirement to follow it up. I thought my investigation might be coming to a best-shot conclusion, but when I read the 1954 addendum, I found out that the story was just getting started all over again. I had three really strong suspects in mind for the Carbarn case. William Clark, Robert Janney, and Walter Oliver after weeding through dozens listed in the 1935 file. I thought I was headed in the right direction, but there was still a big piece of the puzzle that was missing that would tip the scales from probable cause over to beyond a reasonable doubt, the threshold I needed to meet. DC Metro Detective Richard McCarty finally informed Volton that he had discovered a bottle of anesthesia 
in the basement or garage of William Clark's apartment. McCarty didn't report it until three years after the murders. A note in the 1935 file listing various tasks had McCarty's name on it and detailed items that seemed to directly implicate William Clark in the murders of Emery Smith and James Mitchell. The note read, Get gun taken of Clark's, taken by McCarty from taxi driver named Williams. Get info from McCarty, R.E. bloody clothes Clark was wearing. A gun and bloody clothing? Where were these items? What did McCarty do with them? Why was there no follow-up or details about them? Where was McCarty's report? I don't have any other information about this gun or bloody clothing of Clark's. I don't know if a report was ever written and lost, not included in the final file before it was shelved, or why there are no further details anywhere to be found. That appeared to be circumstantial evidence to link Clark to the Carbarn case, but there was no further information about it anywhere. And why was DC Detective Richard McCarty working independently on an investigation of William Clark? Those mysterious notes might help to explain sections of William Clark's slapdash interview with DC Detective Frank Brass and why Brass kept harping so hard about a dark blue suit that Clark was wearing and all the back and forth about the cleaning establishments that he used. Frank Brass and Richard McCarty worked together at the 10th Precinct, so is it possible that McCarty found out about these bloody clothes during Clark's interview and that information just didn't quite make it into the notes? McCarty told Volton that he had done an independent investigation on Clark and searched Clark's apartment and found the anesthesia bottle. Did McCarty also find these bloody clothes and never report them? Who informed Volton about the gun and clothes in 1935 when that checklist was created? It certainly wasn't Richard McCarty. Somebody was feeding Volton that information. And who was the taxi driver named Williams, who supposedly had possession of a gun belonging to Clark, then subsequently gave it to McCarty? I looked up every single taxi driver named Williams in historical phone directories, and there were no less than 20. So it's anyone's guess as to who Williams was. To let off some steam after reading about that missing or mishandled evidence, I started to research Captain Richard McCarty to find out more about him. Richard McCarty was born in 1896 in Washington, D.C. In 1919, he served as an army private in World War I, and by 1920, he was a clerk working for the railroad. By 1930, he was a D.C. police officer. By 1939, McCarty was part of the narcotics squad in D.C. Carbarn suspect Robert Janney was busted in an enormous heroin trafficking operation in 1930, but narcotics were still being transported into the district from New York in 1939. McCarty was part of a huge sting that involved 60 federal agents, 40 raids of houses and businesses, and the arrest of 150 people. Over $6,000 worth of heroin was being dealt in D.C. each week in 1939. That's the equivalent of 120 grand today. McCarty also busted a horse racing wire racket in 1937. 
He tried to record the calls coming in on the switchboard teleflash system to get more leads, but the calls were coming in so fast and furious that a court stenographer and telephone operator weren't able to keep up. The drug trade, horse racing wires, prostitution, and the numbers rackets were still wide open in 1939, despite the district officials' resolute denials in the newspapers. Between 1939 and 1942, the D.C. Metro Police Force went through a massive shakeup, and McCarty was a central figure. In short, Major Ernest Brown, the police superintendent, said that his weakest link in the department was the plainclothes detective division. That meant the homicide unit. Several detectives, including McCarty and Robert Barrett, alleged that Captain Earl Hartman of the Special Investigation Squad, a precursor to internal affairs, was acting as a, quote, Gestapo, sending out detectives to spy on detectives. Remember Earl Hartman? His name should ring a bell. He was one of the seasoned detectives specifically requested by Montgomery County State Attorney James Pugh in his letter to Major Brown in 1937. Hartman was too busy on a secret investigation to work on the Carborn case. Hartman was also Superintendent Brown's right-hand man, second in charge of the department. Earl Hartman's so-called Gestapo was formed after several officers had been found gambling on duty and taking payoffs from racketeers. They got busted, so the surveillance practice spread into other areas of the department, including the homicide unit. Apparently, the practice of taking kickbacks from the racket kingpins was rampant, and McCarty's co-worker, Robert Barrett's subsequent tenure as police chief, was riddled with corruption and impropriety. And that behavior doesn't miraculously begin when a person takes the reins. It wasn't clear exactly who was spying on who or why certain officers were targeted and others weren't. There was a ton of infighting, jockeying for promotion, backbiting, and bickering between the detectives and the Homicide Bureau, and McCarty, Robert Barrett, and a couple of other senior detectives took their experience elsewhere, back to the street in uniform patrol, rather than put up with the internal spying going on under Captain Earl Hartman and Major Ernest Brown. It was a blue flu of sorts leaving the Homicide Division to flounder under new investigators without any contacts or experience. McCarty, Barrett, and the others took a cut in pay, and they put their patrol uniform back on, rather than put up with being spied on by their own co-workers. Was it a legitimate protest of unfair work ethics? Or did McCarty and Barrett have something to hide? By 1942, everything got sorted out. Major Brown retired and McCarty went back to the Detective Bureau as a sergeant, Robert Barrett got a promotion to lieutenant. As this new 1954 report from Captain Volton details, McCarty was still with the DC police, also as a fully ranked captain. Volton contacted McCarty directly and gave him the rundown about the information provided by the confidential informant. Almost 20 years after the start of the Carborn case, Captain Richard McCarty told Volton that he would do everything in his power to solve the murders of Emery Smith and James Mitchell. There was 
no follow-up as to what McCarty did or didn't do with that information from Bolton's informant, and Richard McCarty died two years later in 1956. Whatever McCarty knew about the car barn case, any corruption, cover-ups, or this missing gun and bloody clothing of William Clark's went to the grave with him. When I saw McCarty's name in the 1954 report, I went back and looked at the various notes made in 1935. Not only did those notes have the information about this missing gun and bloody clothes, they also said this. Question Mary as to who officer was that Clark got three or four different guns and also about Pettit. That's Mary Branch. Question her about who the officer was that gave Clark three or four different guns? Pettit, as in suspect Lawrence Pettit from the main office robbery conspiracy? There was no further information about any of this missing evidence or answers to these questions. Why would the detectives, especially Volton, let something like that fall by the wayside? There was no common sense, no justification, no reason for questions of that magnitude to go unanswered. I just didn't understand. Information like that and the missing gun and bloody clothing from McCarty could crack a case wide open. It would be all hands on deck. Everyone in the detective division would redouble our efforts if we received that kind of intel. Why would Volton write it down and not give chase? Something was really wrong. Something stank. Something, or rather someone, was corrupt. And why was Mary Branch such a Gordian knot? Was she ever formally questioned again to explain all of these associations and information she possessed? It seemed to me like little Miss Mary was the keeper of many, many secrets. During her interview, Mary Branch said that a police officer came to her apartment on the Sunday night before the murders to meet with William Clark and they sat around talking. She said that the officer, whose name sounded like Creek or Greek, worked in the area of 13th Street Southeast and that he had blonde hair. But there were no follow-up notes to show that any officer was ever questioned about Mary's allegation. Volton's notes said that an officer got Clark three or four different guns. When did that happen? Who gave that information to Volton? What kind of guns? Was one a 32 caliber Colt semi-automatic? The notes also said to ask Mary Branch about Pettit. On Valentine's Day in 1935, Lawrence Pettit was arrested along with George Bruffy for planning a robbery of the main office car barn at 36th and M Streets, and they were the subject of an 11-day stakeout. At a diner downtown, Lawrence Pettit ran his mouth about the car barn case, saying, that was all a mistake, forget it and Bruffy kicked him under the table and told him to shut his pie hole. Pettit and Bruffy were locked up for the attempted robbery. And these two didn't seem very sophisticated since they still hadn't pulled off that robbery after 11 full days of planning. I researched these two morons and the only other charge I could find on Pettit was a drunken assault in 1932. There was nothing more on George Bruffy at all. Were they just part of the underworld? heard rumors and parroted what they'd heard to Volton's informant at lunch. If Volton made a note to question Mary Branch about Pettit, she must have either known him 
or known of some affiliation between Lawrence Pettit and William Clark. Everything was just so nebulous, it was difficult to say for sure. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Something else I discovered during what I considered to be an off day of newspaper research changed everything. I came across an article about the car barn murders in this little rinky-dink paper, the Cumberland Evening Times. Within the pages was a linchpin that blew me away. The article said, One of the men detained by police is a former employee of the streetcar company who once before was arrested for questioning in connection with a Washington holdup. Mitchell, one of the murdered men, is said to have aided in his previous arrest. The man gave himself up at police headquarters when he learned he was wanted. The woman is alleged to have been with the former employee on the night of the robbery. Did you catch that? You heard it right. A former employee of the transit company who gave himself up at police headquarters and a woman was with him on the night of the robbery? Who else would that be? William Clark committed a robbery prior to the car barn case 
probably the one in October of 1934. After that robbery, James Mitchell aided the police in his arrest. That fact was omitted from the case file. There was nothing, not a scintilla of a mention within the hundreds of pages that referenced this momentous clue, just like Clark's attempted murder of Mary Branch was nowhere to be found. Thanks to that article, I could explain the overkill and reason why James Mitchell was shot three times in the head. The final shot was a coup de grace after Mitchell was already dead. An act like that is cold, calculated, and unnecessary. I was in the suspect's head, which was a really unenviable place, but there were only two reasons for that overkill. Revenge and witness elimination. James Mitchell did know his killer, just as I suspected from the beginning, and Mitchell assisted the police with William Clark's previous arrest. William Clark said that he didn't know Emery Smith, but as I've said before, that was a lie. Clark described the barn man at Chevy Chase Lake as a short, chunky fellow, whom Clark admitted to speaking with on Saturday, January 19th. The only short, chunky barn man was my great uncle. Clark also said he had never spoken to Emery Smith. How could he deny ever speaking to a man he didn't know? Uncle Emery was shot four times in the head. That was also really personal, very deliberate. My uncle was not supposed to be working the graveyard shift that night, which would have come as a surprise to the suspects if one of them did know him. This was personal. This was panic. This was someone he knew. My own words from months before. The motivating factors behind both murders were panic, revenge, and most importantly, witness elimination. After reconsidering the murders with the revelation that James Mitchell aided the police with the arrest of William Clark on a previous robbery, I referred back to Walter Oliver's confession to Horace Davis. Davis asked Oliver why they killed the man in the creek, meaning Uncle Emery, and Oliver said he recognized one of us. Emery Smith did recognize one of them, William Clark. Walter Oliver also said he was with a couple of fellows without naming them. I could name them, William Clark and Robert Janney. My great-uncle's murder was a second witness elimination. James Mitchell was dead. Clark, Oliver, and Janney weren't going to leave anyone alive who could identify them on a premeditated murder rap, a surefire trip to the gallows to be hanged. Emery Smith heard the shouting and gunshots from inside of the car barn, and he confronted the suspects on Connecticut Avenue as they fled north past the barn. Uncle Emery recognized William Clark, and Clark recognized him back. Emery was forced into the car at gunpoint and killed on the way to the bridge, which was the first convenient place to dump his body. Panic, a cover-up, and witness elimination, those were the motivating factors for both of their murders. And that left one person at the Chevy Chase Lake office still breathing, Francis Gregory. Why wasn't he killed too? After they dumped my uncle's body into Rock Creek, I don't believe they continued going north into rural Maryland. I believe they took a right onto Pliers Mill Road in Kensington. 
An extension of Plyer's Mill had just been completed in 1934, and it went east to Georgia Avenue, which they then took south back into the district. Why? Several reasons. The first witnesses to arrive at the office that morning, Parker Hanna and Robert Abersold, drove south on Connecticut Avenue on their way to work within 30 to 40 minutes of the murders. They both said they didn't see any other cars, either on or off the road. If the suspects cut across Plyer's Mill, they could have driven the mile to Georgia Avenue with plenty of time to spare before the others arrived. But most importantly, I say this because of where the suspect vehicle, the stolen green Buick in my opinion, ended up, which was back in Washington, D.C. Captain Volton's 1954 report was more than a gem. It was priceless. It was also difficult to decipher, so I'm going to explain it all in small doses. Now, if you need to go grab a coffee or go raid the cookie jar, now is a really good time to press pause because trust me, this next part is a long walk. I'll be here when you get back. Okay, you ready for this next part? Here we go. I had to jump back and forth between the 1954 addendum and the 1935 reports to start making headway about the vehicle. There was a notation in the 1954 addendum that coincided with another random note in the 1935 report. Both of them told me exactly where I believe the stolen green Buick was hidden after the murders. In the 1935 report, there was a notation that said, quote, See Shorty, rear over garage at 1325 7th Street Northwest, can tell more about Clark than anyone. The 1935 historical directory placed a furniture store at that address. A furniture store would definitely have a loading dock, and it would have a garage used for storage. That address is near the intersection of 7th and N Streets Northwest. Remember that. 7th and N Streets Northwest. Now, here's what Captain Volton wrote in his 1954 addendum. The informant and Captain Volton went to the rear of a building in an alley between 7th and M or N Streets Northwest where a man named Duffy was supposed to operate and run a garage. The informant stated that she knew that the car that contained the body of Emery Smith, one of the murdered parties in the car barn job, was located in this garage at the rear of either 7th and M or N Streets. However, the informant and Captain Volton were never able to locate this garage. Baby steps. First, the 1954 report said that a man named Duffy worked as a mechanic in a garage in the area of 7th and M or N Streets Northwest. The 1935 notes said that Shorty could be found over the garage at 7th and N Streets Northwest. Second, Volton was working with information from two informants, one male, one female. The female informant was certain that the vehicle used in the car barn murders had been stored in this garage, which was in a rear alley. So, the car was parked in D.C. in a back alley garage at 7th and N Street possibly for a number of years before this female informant and Volton went looking for it in 1940, but never found it. Now that I knew where the car had been stored and hidden, 
I looked at the map on my wall where I did geographic profiling. I said that I believed the suspects went east on Pliers Mill Road and then south on Georgia Avenue to get back into the district after the murders. Georgia Avenue turns into 7th Street Northwest at the intersection of Florida Avenue. It would have been a straight shot down 7th Street to N Street and into that back alley garage run by either Duffy or Shorty. Didn't I warn you that there was a lot to unpack in this new report? Well, hang on, this is just the beginning. On to the next part. This is the first paragraph from Volton's 1954 addendum. I'm going to read it in full, then I'm going to break it down. An informant came to me on August 20th, 1954, and told me that he had some additional information on what the police department called the Car Barn murder case. In 1940, the same informant came to me and told me that there was a black man by the name of Duffy who was an automobile mechanic for an ex-Sergeant Green, a former member of the Washington Police Department. The information from my informant came from a woman who was employed by ex-Sergeant Green in a beauty parlor. I know, it's a lot. Let's start with the confidential informants. The original informant from 1940 was male. He came forward again in 1954. His informant was a female who worked in a beauty parlor for a former DC police sergeant named Green. James Weir had the shingle shop beauty parlor before he fled DC to join the military. His sister, Neva Berardinelli, had a beauty parlor, and William Clark's girlfriend, Edith Small, also worked in a beauty parlor. Things were starting to make sense now that I had broken down a little bit of the 1954 report, but there was a lot more to uncover based on Volton's new revelations. Volton tended to jump around from year to year, so I had to unravel the long timeline and follow-ups decade by decade, going back to 1938. In 1938, Volton and Leroy Rogers went to Richmond, Virginia to follow up some information on another case they received from Sergeant Anthony of the Richmond Police Department. They met with Sergeant Anthony, who said, quote, I understand you had a murder in your county, referring to the car barn case. Before getting to the business at hand, Anthony popped off a one-liner to the great surprise of Volton and Rogers, Sergeant Anthony told them that while he was on a trip to the district in 1935, Detective Frank Brass of the Washington Police Department did him a solid and hooked Anthony up with a prostitute. Anthony recalled her first name was Marjorie. It must have been quite a rendezvous. And I now understood that Frank Brass not only had underworld contacts in the prostitution racket, he wasn't shy about extending personal, illegal favors to out-of-town officers. Volton and Rogers didn't travel three hours to Richmond to hear about Anthony's exploits with a hooker, but Anthony reminisced and told them that this woman, Marjorie, had done some pillow talk while they were together. Marjorie told Sergeant Anthony that the car barn murders were planned in the Houston Hotel and that William Clark was connected with the job. 
It seemed the street rumors about Clark extended far and wide, even to indiscriminate hookers. Everyone in the district seemed to know about Clark. Somehow, the whole city had the skinny on him. Everyone except the district detectives working the case. What a crock. Mattress Maven Marjorie confirmed my hunch that this case was a cover-up buried under a mound of corruption. I didn't know the reason why yet, but I was hoping to find out. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Sticking with that time frame of 1938, there was a letter dated August 23, 1938, written by inmate Floyd Gray of the Moundsville Penitentiary in West Virginia. Here's what Floyd Gray's letter said. Mr. C.M. Stone, Warden. Dear Warden, I am in the South Hall and in cell with Joseph War Kirby. He was, as you know, connected with the slaying of Earl Dahlman along with Lawrence Gingle and Willie B. Reed. The latter was hung here. Joseph Kirby asked me a while back if I would write a story of his crimes for him. This I did for him, and in doing so, I discovered that he knew the name of the man who robbed and killed a man at the street car barn offices in Chevy Chase, Maryland. 
The man was a night watchman for the streetcar company. This case is still unsolved. The prosecuting attorney from Montgomery County came to Charleston and questioned Kirby about this killing, but he denied knowing anything about it. I learned that one of the men is now serving a 10-year sentence in the Maryland House of Corrections. I'm sure that the state of Maryland would like to see this mystery murder case solved. I'm willing to help all I can. That is to say what he told me about it. The prosecuting attorney's name is Mr. Pugh, Rockville, Maryland. You may write to him and he can tell you all about it. I sell with Kirby and I don't want him to know what I'm doing to help solve this mystery. And if Mr. Pugh writes me any letters concerning it, please see that they're not brought to my cell door as Kirby could see the postmark and become suspicious about what I was doing. Tell him I'll give them a real hot tip if he wants me to. Please see to this that it does not reach Kirby via the grapevine route. Yours truly, Floyd G. Gray, South Hall. Why is this relevant? Joseph War Kirby, Willie Reed, and his two brothers were known as the Reed Gang. Volton had been tracking the Reed Gang after they were suspected in a series of robberies and murders. Detective Volton went to Moundsville Penitentiary and he spoke with Floyd Gray and with Joseph War Kirby. Floyd Gray told Volton that he had a faint recollection of the name William Clark being mentioned by Joseph War Kirby. Gray's letter alleged that one of the Carbarn suspects was currently serving 10 years at the Maryland House of Corrections. William Clark and Robert Janney were serving their sentences there in 1938. When Volton spoke with Joseph War Kirby, he told Volton that he recalled the name Clark being mentioned by the Reed brothers. Kirby also said that he recalled the name Weir being mentioned. Joseph War Kirby placed William Clark and James Weir in the same criminal circle as the Reed gang. There was another important link to mention here. Remember Arthur Waugh and Harry Simon, the Kensington men brought in for questioning in March of 1935? Harry Simon, not his real name, schlepped condoms in a briefcase, and he had racket ties to New York, Philadelphia, and D.C. Arthur Waugh's interview was half-baked, and he couldn't remember anything because he spent most nights drinking in the district. Now, here's the link that I want to make. One of Arthur Waugh's good friends was named Ernest Daymood, and he was mentioned during Arthur's questioning. Well, here's the kicker and the link between Arthur Waugh and the Reed gang. The Reed brother's sister, Mary Frances, married into Ernest Daymood's family. There were connections between the murderous Reed brothers and Arthur Waugh's friend, Ernest Daymood. They all lived in Kensington, which was a really small section of Montgomery County. Everybody knew everybody. The connections between Arthur Waugh and his friend Ernest Daymood to the Reed Gang wasn't all I found. The names Arthur and Luke, as in Arthur's uncle, Luke Johnson, were mentioned in a tax evasion case involving another family involved in the rackets, the Warring Brothers, they were known as the Foggy Bottom Gang. Yeah, I know, all of these well-known racket gangs and there was no crime in the district. Right. The Warring Brothers, the Foggy Bottom Gang, were the gambling kingpins of the district, hands down. They ran bookie joints, the numbers racket, and gambling halls all over D.C. to the tune of four million bucks. 
1935. You do the math. The government busted the Foggy Bottom gang on tax fraud, and the Washington Post listed every single person, all 75 of them, who received proceeds from the Foggy Bottom gang's gaming racket from the menial bookies all the way up the ladder to the principals. The names Arthur and Luke, address unknown, were listed with another name, Shorty, the man who lived above the garage at 7th and N Streets Northwest. The list detailed that Luke received about 400 bucks, Arthur got 550 bucks, and Shorty pocketed a paltry $6. That is what Arthur Waugh was doing during his mysterious all-night benders in the district. Now listen, I don't care who you know or who you blow, Arthur Waugh wasn't drinking free liquor on someone else's dime. Unemployed Arthur was getting money from somewhere to go on his boozer binges, and it sure as hell wasn't his estranged wife Myrtle or his uncle Luke Johnson. When I coupled the likelihood that Arthur and Luke were running numbers for the Warring Brothers and the Foggy Bottom Gang, their adjacent affiliation to the Reed Brothers via Ernest Daymood, along with Harry Simon's condom-soliciting bullshit, it led to this conclusion for my investigation. Arthur Waugh, Luke Johnson, and Harry Simon had their petty underworld connections. Simons were in Philly and New York, where he peddled prophylactics. Arthur Waugh and Luke Johnson were running numbers or booking horse racing bets for the Foggy Bottom Gang. Not that I'm a gambling-type gal, but I'd put money on Dan's hot dog stand as the central place for meetups and exchanges between Kensington and D.C. That assertion is not unsubstantiated. During my research, I read a book titled LAPD's Rogue Cops, Cover-Ups and the Cookie Jar, written by former LAPD officer Vincent Carter about his days as a cop in Los Angeles in the 1940s. This is a quote from Carter's book. The arrest that got him in trouble was made by him and his partner at a hot dog stand. The owner was selling a lot more than hot dogs. He was dealing in everything that was hot, from narcotics to guns. He preferred guns because he had protection in the robbery division and could get the guns back to deal again. If underworld deals were happening at hot dog stands across the country in Los Angeles, it's highly probable, if not a certainty, that dirty deals were happening at Dan's hot dog stand at Chevy Chase Lake. Bootlegger Mildred Oliver was loitering at Dan's, likely meeting up with William Clark in the fall of 1934. These clandestine affairs would also help to explain why Arthur Waugh and Harry Simon were so evasive during their interviews and why Arthur's younger brother, Clarence, was hanging out at Dan's after dark. If meetups were happening next to the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office at Dan's hot dog stand and Arthur Waugh and Harry Simon were in the know about the shady shit going on, coupled with the Foggy Bottom Gang's wall-to-wall gambling hustle and the Reed Brothers' affiliation to people they knew in Kensington, it's not a wonder why Arthur Waugh and Harry Simon bumbled their way through their words rather than to admit any affiliation with the local rackets. Admitting as much to the police would have put a target on their backs. After a double homicide, they weren't about to squawk about anything they were doing on the lowdown 
or about anyone else. I realized that was a long hike, but I wanted to tie up those loose ends. Let's get back to the 1954 report from Captain Volton. When Volton went to Richmond, Virginia in 1938, he talked with Sergeant Anthony, who told him that Frank Brass had hooked him up with a prostitute named Marjorie back in 1935. Anthony also said that this woman Marjorie had done some pillow talk while they were together. She told Anthony that the car barn murders were planned in the Houston Hotel and that William Clark was connected with the job. Volton and Rogers took that information and looked through the ID files for prostitutes named Marjorie and pulled several photos, which Volton held on to for several years. In 1944 or 45, Volton recalled driving all the way down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to talk with retired DC detective Frank Brass, who was working for the post office. Volton showed Brass the pictures of several women of the night who went by the name Marjorie in 1935. Frank Brass did not deny setting up Sergeant Anthony with a prostitute, and he looked the photos over, but he couldn't identify any of them as being the woman he knew back then. Captain Volton got himself into some hot water after that little jaunt to Florida because he used an unauthorized city vehicle for the 2,200-mile round trip. He was given a 30-day suspension when he got back. He admitted to mixing business with pleasure on that trip to Fort Lauderdale, and he took his lumps from the police administration. Sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Continuing with the report from 1954, the confidential male informant, provided Volton with several bombshells. My job was to sort out the final pieces of the puzzle, even though the box top with the whole picture was gone. That was easier said than done, but I was game for the ride, and I hope you are too. Tighten your seatbelt. The male informant told Volton that the female informant said the best satisfaction she could get would be to get back at ex-Sergeant Green from the D.C. police force. The male informant apprised Captain Volton that by 1954, the female informant was dead. Before she died, she told the male informant that the car barn murders were planned in a beauty salon operated by ex-Sergeant Green, and the people present at that planning were ex-Sergeant Green, William Franklin Clark, a man by the name of White, a girl with the name Emmanuel, who worked for ex-Sergeant Green, who had an Italian last name, and also Duffy, the man who worked in a garage as a mechanic for ex-Sergeant Green. Well, I had my next assignment. Find out the identity of ex-Sergeant Green. If you have information about the car barn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.